Good morning, Church of the Open Door. Those of you that don't know me, my name is Jason Russ. I am the campus pastor of the Lorraine campus. I brought my mug this morning. There it is. We have some Lorraineites here this morning. So it kind of feels like Lorraine. Uh, Tony's sister was up here with us, a little Reyes love. It was great. And uh, it's great to see you. And hello to all our other campuses out there, especially my peeps at Lorraine. But it's great to be back in this place. I love being uh, what I call home because I grew up in this place. It's a special place for me, as for many of you. And uh, we've been going through this series talking about fighting, putting the gloves on. We've been sitting ringside watching Jesus and Satan go at it, battle of words, right? And these guys have been amazing to watch, to see what's going on and what we can learn from it. And that we're wrapping it up today, kind of bringing it back around. And I don't know about you, but as we think about boxing and the gloves and the fight, uh, an iconic movie came to mind throughout this series that you'll see in one picture right there. You know that guy, right? Rocky Balboa, Adrian, right? Okay, so this is a great moment, though. Remember when he's going running up the steps? He's running up those steps in Philly, and he turns around after that long run. The music's playing, and he raises his arms. He hasn't gone to the prize fight yet. He hasn't done anything, so to speak. But in his heart and mind, he's already won. And that's where we are with Jesus in the desert. He is literally in the desert. And even though he doesn't have much strength, he really probably raises his hands because he's so hungry and thirsty. I believe in his spirit, he's, he's like this. Jesus is already winning, man. That's what I do. I win, I win, I win. That's Jesus, not the, the prideful Jesus. He's not proud, but, but that's Jesus right there. But Rocky said something that made me actually think of what Satan might be saying in this moment. Rocky said this, take a look. Remember, the mind is your best muscle. Big arms can move rocks, but big words can move mountains. That's from the mouth of Rocky Balboa. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? And I think that's exactly what Satan's doing. This is not a fight of fisticuffs. This is a fight of words. And Satan truly believes with all his heart that just with the power of his words and his, his influence and his beauty, he can convince Jesus of a few things. What an arrogant guy he is, being. He's not a guy, he's a being. You know, I mean, he's talking to the one that actually created him. He is a created being. Let's just remind ourselves of that fact. But he is so arrogant that he says things like he'll say today, if you are the son. He said it in the, one of the other temptations. He'll say it again today. And then what's amazing to me is that he has the audacity to question who Jesus is, right? After the father just said at the river 40 days ago or so that you are my son. He has the audacity to question that. But then a few verses later in chapter four, we'll study this in the coming weeks, Jesus is out there healing and he's casting out demon after demon after demon. And every one of those guys, these are the trainees of Satan come out of the, of the person saying, you are the son of God. Now, isn't that an interesting uh, contrast? I mean, they must not have gotten the memo. I can just imagine Satan going, oh, another one just said he's the son of, oh, another one just said he's the son of God. What am I gonna do with my guys? These demons just don't get it. But see, Satan's in a whole nother plane, isn't he? The demons recognize Jesus for who he was, but Satan is so full of himself, so uh, at rage with the Father that he has the audacity to question everything about Jesus. It's a fascinating thing to me as we've been going through this. And so we pick up on the last of the three temptations that, that Luke highlights. And if you would, please grab your Bibles. Uh, Luke chapter four, we're gonna stand to honor God's word. and We're gonna be in verse nine. 
to wrap up this series of fighting for your life. And we begin with verse 9 of chapter 4 of the, the, the book of Luke. Then the devil took Jesus to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, if you are the son, there it is, of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, he will order his angels to protect and to guard you, and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. What do you say, Jesus? Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, You must not test the Lord your God. And when the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you. So Satan, to start off this last temptation, this last volley of words, he swings at Jesus and and takes him to a high point. Takes him to a high point in the city. As a matter of fact, it's probably one of the highest points in the city, but it's hard for us to imagine in our uh, so many years removed. And that's why I'm so glad that I went on the Israel trip this past uh, fall because we got to go to a little place called the Israel Museum. And of all the, the things you see there, you come in the front door and you're confronted by this, this scale model of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. And uh, it's obviously, you can see the people, the size of the people. It's not to scale for, for us, but it's a mini version of Jerusalem, even uh, with the topography correct and everything. And you see how this is the, the, the Temple Mount right here. This is the city of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. And everything from the walls, uh, the outer walls, it all works its way up to the top of the mountain, which is where the temple is. That's why it's called the Temple Mount, Mount Zion, right? And so when we talk about a high place, the, the mount that is Mount Zion is already high, but then they build the, the temple on top of that, which is super high. So literally, Jesus and Satan are standing right there, not only looking over the temple area, but they can turn around and see the entire city of Jerusalem. So that gives us a picture of what they're actually seeing, right? Now let's zoom in on the, on the actual temple mount uh, and the temple itself. And you can just see this scene of the two of them standing here and looking over this. And you see the height of this uh, grand temple that, that Herod built, right? Really more for his glory than for God's. But... There they are, and it's tall. But for, again, for us in our century to know, like, how do we gather that? How high was it, right? Let me take you somewhere where you've all been to give you a, a gist of how high it was. How many of you guys have been here? Opening day, I think, was this week, right? And so this is Cedar Point. So Herod's temple was just six feet higher than the Ferris wheel at Cedar Point. How many of you guys have been on the, on the Ferris wheel at Cedar Point? Come on, raise your hands, all campuses. I can see you. All right, good. Some of you did not raise your hands because you're afraid of heights, like my dad who's here. But let me just give you a picture of what it looks like from there, because I do this, I'm sick and twisted and weird. But this is from the top, looking down. Oh, and some of you are like, huh, right? Now, imagine that, go up six more feet, and that's the height at which Satan and Jesus were standing. That's the height at which Satan was saying to Jesus, just jump off, Jesus. Um, that's high. That's really high. So now you know the high place, right? And it's a place that Jesus had been before, just like you have been to Cedar Point. Uh, This was a place for Jesus. It was Cedar Point in Jesus' heart. The temple was the place that that when he was 12 years old and he was lost, he, he spent three nights and three days in the temple. And he was happy as a clam, right? 
Uh, when every time they would go for the festivals as a family, the first place I'm sure Jesus wanted to be was the temple. That was his cedar point. It was a place he'd been. It's like, it's like this building, this room in my life. I've been here before, and when I come in this room, I feel certain things, and I have certain emotions, and I'm sure that Jesus, when he came here, he had certain emotions because he'd been there before. It's a familiar place. He'd been there before as a boy, as a learner, and he had grown up seeing the, 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 the different priests and, and coming to that town and celebrating the festivals and focusing on his God and being near the presence of his father. And Jesus would come again to this temple in the future to do some house cleaning because trust me, as he looked around, not only did he see all the people and could see all the, the places the people lived, but he also could see all the stuff that was happening in the courtyards. He could see the people uh, exchanging money and, and, and desecrating the temple, right? He could see the people coming with their, their hearts, some in the right place, some in the wrong place. He could see the temple treasury being filled and the, and the leaders, the religious leaders, just focused on, oh, what, how much money are we getting today? And I bet you as Jesus looked all around that place, his heart broke. And that is the specific reason I believe that Satan was strategic in this last temptation to say, I'm gonna bring you to the place where your heart beats fast for, the temple, where you would see all of Jerusalem, all the people of God, and I'm gonna propose something to you. I'm gonna give you this if statement, if you're the son of God, but I'm also gonna throw on top of it a what if. I'm gonna throw on top of your if statement, if you're the son, a what if. What if, Jesus, you decided to just kind of walk off this roof and fall down, what would happen? And this, again, this is Satan's playground with you and me. He loves the what if question. That's, that's the bottom line of the grass is greener on the other side, right? What if I left this and went over there? It's usually not all that it's, it's cracked up to be. You know, um, you know I, I didn't get a chance to study for this test, and so, you know, this guy next to me, he's not covering up his answers, and I know he's a straight-A student, so what if? I just kind of, you know, nobody's here. Nobody's here at work, and it's extra money somebody put in. You don't have to tell anybody it came in. Just put it in your pocket. You need the money. You deserve it. You're not even going to raise in three years. What if? You know, that wife of yours, she has really been hard on you, and she does not really give you the affection you need. But that gal at work, man, she really worships the ground you walk on. What if? You know, that... That high you've been getting from that other stuff you're using ain't doing it anymore. There's a new product out there. What if Satan loves to do this? And he tries it with Jesus. Satan's trying to challenge Jesus to prove something. Prove it. Prove it to me, Jesus. Prove it to me what? Prove something to God, first of all. He's trying to say, I want you to, to by jumping, to prove to God a couple things. That first, God acknowledges that you are his son, Right? Prove it that he looks at you as his son. Prove to him and to me, essentially, that he cares even. Does God even care about you, Jesus? I mean, you've been alone out here for all these days. You have nothing to eat. You got nothing to drink. Come on, prove it. Push God a little bit and have him show up. Show, show that he cares. Show me that he even, he even is here. Is he even present? And you know what? This is a key to the desert, folks. When we are out in the wilderness, in our wilderness moments, and the testing and temptation comes, Satan loves to come in and mess with our identity. We talked about that before. He loves to 
to try and make us think that God doesn't care about us. He's given up on us. And that bottom line, he is not there. And Jesus doesn't bite. But we'll get to that in a moment. But I just love this. And you know what? I believe Jesus drew from what happened 40 days earlier on that river. He came up out of the water. And what did God say? God said to him, this is my son whom I love. He cares. He was present, right? And he gave him the assurance of his presence and his sonship by sending that dove, the light on, his, on him. And that was the affirmation that Jesus needed. But Satan says, that was a long time ago. You need, to, you need to double check this. It's been a while. And isn't that how it works with us too? Time passes. We have that moment with God. Days have gone by, but now I'm in the desert. Why did I ever believe this? Why did I ever go this direction? What was I thinking? Where is God? Well, Satan's also pushing Jesus to try and prove something to people. To people. Because like I told you, remember in that image, that there were people in the temple and there were, you could turn around and see all the people of Jerusalem. All around were people everywhere. The people of Israel that God had wanted to redeem, right? That's why Jesus had come. So, so basically Satan's saying, you have a chance right now, Jesus, before you even go any further to prove to all these people that you are the Messiah. This is a great test. Throw yourself out there and, you know, Everyone will be like, oh, bow down and worship. The whole town will show up at the temple. And then you can go ahead and lead the charge, take over the Romans, take over the world. This is what you came for, isn't it, Jesus? You gotta remember that Satan, he has the worldly mind view. And that's what he thinks with. And so he's thinking, this is a really good temptation. Jesus is gonna bite. He didn't go for the whole, I'll give you the authority of the nations, but he'll go for this, especially in the context of the temple that means so much to him, the people that mean so much to him. Isn't that something? And all you gotta do, Jesus, is jump, jump. Now, when I think of that word jump, it makes me think of my old diving board at my pool I had in Arizona. It's a, it's a happy kind of like, hey, jump, you know, but it's, this is not a happy jump. When you look at the ESV, the literal translation of what Satan says is throw yourself down from here. Satan's literally tempting Jesus and saying, Take your own life, Jesus. This is a walk off the bridge moment. You saw how high it was. He's not coming back from this if it doesn't work out. And boy, isn't Satan involved in that a lot these days, in people's ears saying, it's not worth it. God's not here. Walk off the bridge. And he is tempting Jesus to do that. And if you've ever been there, can I just say, Jesus knows how you feel. He's walked there before. And he wants to walk you through that feeling and it's not too late for you. Jesus walked away from the bridge. You can too, okay? So, but literally, I want you to see something about Satan. In all the temptations, and especially this one, Satan's saying, basically, follow me, Jesus. Follow me. The, the very thing that Jesus will go out and say to all these men uh, and women as he gathers disciples is follow me. And Satan uses it on Jesus. He doesn't say it in the text, let me be clear. But that's essentially what he's saying. Follow me. Turn this bread to stone, this stone to bread. Follow me, and I'll give you the authority. Follow me, and this is my plan for you to become Messiah and prove yourself to God. Jump. Throw yourself down. But there's a backstory to this, too, I want you to see. Uh, just like any prize fight, when it's the top ticket, right, and it's the two fighters everybody's been waiting for, the best fights are always those when 
There's two contenders that have had history, right? I mean, that's the ones that people will pay lots of money for. They will pay to watch those men or those women, whoever you're watching fighting, that have been at it for many years. One 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 time, the other one defeated the other one another time, and that's Jesus and Satan. They have been around each other a long time. And let me show you what I mean by that. Isaiah talks about it first, Isaiah 14. And there's other places you can go, but I'm just going to give you two. Isaiah speaks of Satan in 14.12, where he says, How are you fallen from heaven, O star of the morning? Or son of the morning, shining star, you have been thrown down to the earth. You who destroyed the nations of the world, for you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. This gives you a picture into the darkness of the, of the, the inside of Satan, right? He literally believed that he could ascend far above the Father, and God threw him down. That's why I say, in a sense, in a sense, Satan's saying, follow me, Jesus. You know, nobody, nobody, uh, nobody caught me. Let's see if this, this father of yours is going to catch you. And so then it goes on. Isaiah says, I will preside on the mountains of the gods far away. This is still Satan speaking to himself in the north. I will climb the highest heavens and be like the most high. And don't you see that in this scene? Satan is trying to replace the father. He is trying to step in between Jesus and the father and say, Jesus, don't have to do it that way, do it my way. It's exactly what he did with Adam and Eve. He stepped in between them and the Father. It's exactly what he does with you and me. He blocks the vision of the Father by getting in the way. And so here's his ultimate demise. Isaiah says, instead, though, you will be brought down to the place of the dead, down to its lowest depth. Not only was Satan thrown down from heaven, in the end, there's a throwdown coming. He is going to be thrown down to the depths of the dead. So we know that is his destiny. Why do we let him get in the way between us and the Father? Don't let it happen, brothers and sisters, okay? And so don't take my word for it from Isaiah. Let's take it from the mouth of Jesus. Later in the, in the book, we're going to study where Jesus says to his disciples, yes, fellas, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And that's not a proud statement. Jesus is trying to get their attention, saying, guys, I know you think this is a pretty big deal that, that I sent you out and you're casting out demons or obeying you in my name, but I saw Satan fall from heaven. And a lot of us read past that and don't even think about it. Jesus is giving eyewitness testimony. I saw Satan fall from heaven. He goes on, look, I've given you authority over all the powers of the enemy. And you can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them. Remember that statement. He's saying, this is what I've given you. You can go and you can, you can trample among scorpions and snakes, not get hurt and actually kill them. That's the authority I gave you. Same language that Satan used, that all authority has been given to me. Nothing will injure you, but don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are written and registered in heaven. Don't rejoice because you think you're all that, Christian. Don't rejoice because you think you have figured it all out and you are now writing books in the model Christian doing the tour. Uh, no, don't rejoice about anything that you've done. Rejoice about what God has done. Rejoice about what he's doing in you. Rejoice about the fact that he knows your name. He knows your name and pursue that relationship. Pursue that. That In that is life. 
And this is what Jesus models for us in this moment. He will not let anything get in the way between him and the Father. He might allow Satan to get in the way for a minute to ask some questions, but pretty soon, get out of here, Satan. Watch what happens next. As Satan then thinks, I got to pull this out. I haven't done this yet. I'm bringing in a haymaker. This is a punch he hasn't seen yet. And so he, he swings. And did you notice that Satan quotes scripture? I mean, that's not a small thing, folks. Can I say, I think with some authority, that I believe Satan knows the word a lot better than many Christians. So if you want to be a healthy, growing uh, Christian that's going to make it in the desert, that's going to defeat uh, Satan's temptations and prove yourself in the testing, you got to know the Bible better than him. That levels the playing ground, doesn't it? That means we all have to be growing. We all have to be searching. We all have to be going after the Lord. So plug for the daily devotions. Get in the word. Plug for life groups to talk about the sermon and, and to dig in deeper. Plug for getting in digs and getting into discipleship, folks. We need to know the word because Satan knows it and he knows how to misuse it really well. Because what he does is he gives this scripture, Psalm 91, 11 and 12. It's pretty much verbatim. But he, what he does is he pulls it out of context and he applies it to a situation that could actually, he misapplies it to the situation and tries to lead Jesus to sin. And how many of us have gone down that road? Satan has brought to mind a scripture and we justify that we're going to do something based on pulling out something from scripture only to later find when we read the scripture and study that ourselves, oh my goodness, I misapplied that scripture and I sinned against that person. It's happened. It happens in the church all the time. We've got to know the word because this is what Satan loves to do. He, he quotes this, for he will order his angels to protect you, Psalm 91. Wherever you go, they will hold you up with their hands so that you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. And so this is what Satan thinks he's got, Jesus. I'm gonna throw this punch. He won't see it coming. But Jesus' answer is brilliant. Jesus' answer takes Satan, who took Jesus to the high point, Jesus is going to take Satan to the low point. He's going right down to a low point. Now, is this a low point in Satan's life? Is it a low point in Jesus' life? What do I mean by that? Um, no, they're still on the top of the temple. But Jesus' reference here makes a shot to a low point, and we'll see what I mean by that. He says this, scriptures say also, and I love that. He just counters. You know, it also says in scripture, you must not test the Lord your God, Satan. And pretty much at that point, discussion over. We'll get to that too. But let's go to the original. What is Jesus quoting here? If you look in your footnotes of your Bible, you'd see that it's a quote from Deuteronomy 6.16. And let me read that whole verse for you. And this is Moses talking to the Israelites, the second generation that came out of Egypt. So these guys, these adults were kids with their parents walking through the Red Sea and coming out of, the, uh, of slavery in Egypt. But now they're adults and he is about to die, Moses says. And he's giving them instructions about how to follow the Lord and what to do and not to veer from it and to teach their children, right? And Moses says, listen, you must not test the Lord your God as you did when you complained at Massah. So Jesus leaves out that part for, for good reason. But as I looked at that, I thought to myself, I don't remember what happened at Massah. Was that some oasis in the desert? Was that, I don't know, what was it? And so as you dig into that, then you see that Massah dealt with these people's parents. Let's go to Exodus. And this is a place Jesus takes Satan, a place that is a place he has been before. 
And you'll see what I mean by this as we get into it. Let's go back to what Messiah was, and let me show you. It's basically after they had received the Ten Commandments, and they were on this mountain right here, Mount Sinai. You have a breathtaking view of that mountain. The mountain of God is called, where they received the Ten Commandments. And then they did some wandering, and they find themselves back at the mountain. And they are thirsty, and they are grumpy, and they are ready to do some things that I, would, I believe they would regret. And it says that basically, they're arguing with Moses, they're complaining at him, they're, they're demanding water, demanding things that Moses is like, what am I, I can't do this for you. But tormented by thirst, it says in verse three, they, gave, they continued to argue with Moses, why did you bring us out of Egypt? Are you trying to kill us, our children and our livestock with thirst? And then Moses does what Jesus does, he cried out to the Lord, I love that. But did you notice that they are tormented by thirst? Jesus is in this moment, in the desert, Satan's coming at him, and Jesus was no less tormented. He was tormented by hunger, tormented by thirst, but remember that his source was different than what Satan was offering. And we get tormented in the desert, and what do we do as a church? We tend to go to our leaders and we complain and we argue, and what happens? It doesn't get any better. And what happens after that is that then we begin to test the Lord, and the church does this, we're really good at it, and that's why it's here in Scripture to teach us. And then it says, Moses cried out. This is what we all need to do in those moments of desperation. What do I do with these people, Lord? They're about to stone me. Again, Jesus would find himself here too, very soon, about to be stoned by his own people. And the Lord tells Moses what to do. Go out in front of the people, get the elders, those very men that were crying out against you, and stand in front of this rock. Take that staff that you, you touched the waters of the Nile and turned water to blood, and I want you to strike that rock. And when Moses did exactly as the Lord said, every word of it, he struck that rock, and guess what happened? I love this picture. Water just came busting out. Could have looked like this, maybe. But to the amazement of the people, and all of a sudden, they're no longer upset, and they're no longer mad. But Moses did not want the people to forget what happened that day. So listen to what it says in verse 7 of Exodus 17. Moses named the place Massah. There it is, which means testing. And then he also named it Meribah, which means arguing. <laughs> Isn't that funny? He named those places that, like put the sign there, this is the town of Massah and Meribah. Never forget it, Israel. This is the place you tested the Lord and you argued against him and your leaders. And this is the place it says, they argued with Moses and tested the Lord by saying, listen to this, is the Lord here with us or not? And that, my friends, is exactly where Satan is taking Jesus. He is asking that question with his test. Come on, Jesus, jump. Is he here with you or not? I don't believe it. And tries to draw Jesus into argument, tries to draw Jesus into that. But Jesus doesn't bite. He doesn't debate. He debunks Satan. He's not going to debate him. He's going to debunk. This is a great word to add to your lexicon. I love debunk. It simply means to expose the sham. And that's what Satan is. He's a sham. I mean, just think about it for a second. He defied the living God. He hates the author of Scripture. And then he's going to use it to make his point? That's a sham. That's a lie. We need to understand that about him. And in Jesus' response of not testing the Lord and quoting this Scripture, he, he proves a few things himself. Let's take a look at what he proves about himself. First of all, Jesus proves that he is the rock. 
He is the rock that is immovable and miraculous. He is that rock. Because in this moment, Satan thinks he's got a chance for Jesus. I'm going to up it. I'm going to give him the next swing, and he'll fold. But Jesus shows himself to be steady. You can't touch me. I will not move. You will not make me budge an inch. As a matter of fact, the more you hit me, guess what? The more certain it is that there's a miracle about to happen. We're going to study that in the weeks to come. That out of Jesus will flow miracles and power of the Spirit. Amen? And so... Don't take my word for it. Look at what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians. And we've talked about this passage a little bit, but I want to give you a little bit more of the passage. I don't want you to forget, Paul writes, about about our ancestors in the wilderness. He's talking about that first generation of Israelites coming out of Egypt. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them. All of them walked through the sea on dry ground. And in the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food and all of them drank the same spiritual water for they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them. And that rock was Jesus. That rock was Christ. And and this is what we have at our disposal, believers. When we're in the desert, when we're walking through tough times, what Jesus teaches us in the temptations is that we, like the Israelites who messed it up, we can feed off of the Word that comes out of God's mouth, the manna from heaven, Jesus. We can drink from that rock that is Jesus that gives us his spirit. And that's where we find sustenance in the midst of the desert. But yet some God was not pleased with, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Some of us can end up there. We either drink from and eat from him in the wilderness, or we end up scattered in the wilderness. That's exactly the destiny of both both options. And that's it. But then it goes on. These things happen as a warning to us so that we would not crave, there it is, evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did. And that's exactly what Satan's jumping on. Jesus is craving. He's wanting. He's desiring things. And that's when Satan loves to jump on us too, friends. He loves to jump in. He loves to get us when we're weak. And I love how Paul points out almost every temptation that Jesus faces right here. Where Israel failed in the wilderness, Jesus succeeded. Amen? And then later in this passage, we read this already, if you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. Verse 13, the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you're tempted, he will show you, show you a way out so that you can endure it. You can get through it with him. Amen? And so I want you to see that that's the context of that verse on temptation is the, the, the manna from heaven, the, the water from the rock, the turning away from idols, which is exactly way, the way Jesus is being tested here. And Jesus shows his complete trust and utter trust in the Father. Do you see it? He is totally surrendered to God the Father. He is totally at his mercy and will not allow anything to get in the way of that. He is immovable. And Just to show my point about Jesus' complete trust, his immovability, I want to illustrate it with the very psalm that Satan picked. Let's go back to Psalm 91, and I want to show you, actually, the context of Psalm 91 and how Jesus fulfilled it. Psalm 91 starts, those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God, and I trust him. Do you see Jesus embodying that in the desert? 
Absolutely. In the face of testing and temptation, Jesus is living that out. And it goes on. This is Jesus right here. For he will rescue you from every trap, protect you from deadly disease. He will cover you with his feathers. He will shelter you with his wings. His faithful promises are your armor and protection. That's Jesus in the temptation. He's covered. He is hiding himself in the Lord. Even so, what comes out of Jesus' mouth is literally just the promises of God, the words of God. He shoots back, and it's like armor around him. So many times we talk about protecting and protecting us and saving us as if, like, God, that means you're going to take me away from this horrible situation I'm in. Not always. It's, it wasn't true for Jesus. Jesus was in there. Protection and, and, and rescue can come in the midst of the war. It can come in the midst of the fight simply because God is there with you. Amen? And he's faithful. And then you speak his words, and it's so awesome what happens. And so Jesus literally, we talk about that if you are the son of God, he's living that out. He's living out that he is the son of God, and if that's true, then that means he's the victor. Victory is coming. Jesus will be victorious. And why do I say this? Well, let me take you to the verses that Satan used, and then some. Satan used these verses. If you make the Lord, well, not this one yet. If you make the Lord your refuge, if you make the most high your shelter, no evil will conquer you. No plague will come near your home, for he will order his angels to protect you wherever you go. They will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Now, that's what Satan quotes. And what's interesting is that Jesus did these things. And yes, he was saying, hey, let's push God, Jesus, and get those angels down here to, to catch you. Do it my way. But the truth of the matter is, is that Jesus remained in the shelter of the Most High, and he waited upon the Lord. Satan leaves, and Matthew and Mark both record that, guess what? Angels did come and tend to Jesus in the desert on the Father's time, not on Satan's time with his crummy little plan. Understand it? So, Often we undercut what God's doing by trying to take matters in our own hands. Achan learned this. We learned it, we read it this week. Achan's sin. We know about that in the book of Joshua. Achan grabbed those things in the, in, uh, in the city of Jericho for himself and hid them. And his, him and his whole family paid for it. And then Israel took care of that. The very next town, what did God say? You can go ahead and take what you want from the city. If Achan had just waited on the Lord, he would have been able to take what he wanted from the next city. This is what we do, but not Jesus. Jesus says, no, I'll wait on the Lord. But you know what? Satan stopped at verse 12. Let's read verse 13. The one who trusts in the Most High will trample upon lions and cobras. You will crush fierce lions and serpents under your feet. Sound familiar? It's exactly what Jesus is talking about, except Jesus said uh, serpents and uh, scorpions but here the psalmist says lions and serpents. You know in the Bible, the two most common animals referring to Satan are the lion and the serpent. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. He's not fooled by Satan. He knows what Psalm 91 says. And he knows as he shelters himself under the most high, he will be literally crushing Satan under his feet. So what about it? We've been doing this journey of fighting. We've been ringside for all this, these four weeks regarding testing and temptation, what do we learn? What do we take with us as we close today? First of all, I want you to know, the passage says that Satan left until the next opportunity. So testing and temptation will be part of our life forever. 
until we see Jesus face to face. Just gotta accept it, folks. It never stopped for Jesus. You're like, what? Didn't Jesus have it easier because he was the son of God? He was fully God and fully man. He did not have it easier. He submitted himself to everything we go through. And let me just show you two places where Satan showed up again. There's more, but here's one from the book of Matthew, verse 16, where, where Jesus is talking to his disciples and he tells them, I'm gonna die, guys. And he gives specific details on how it'll happen. Peter grabs it and says, no, Jesus, this will never happen to you. He literally rebukes Jesus. And Jesus turns around and says, get away from me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. And that's exactly what we see in the temptations. Satan has only the thoughts of man for Jesus, right? But I, I, I literally think it's amazing to me that whatever he was whispering in, in, in Peter's ear came out and Jesus was able to identify it. And I love it. Literally, Jesus says, get behind me. That, that's the idea of you're in the way between me and the Father. Get behind me because I follow him like you should follow him. Wow. Jesus rebuked Satan in that moment. Here's another spot where Jesus was again tempted on the cross, Matthew 27. Listen, this could, this could, could be Satan himself saying it, but it's, it's a person, I think, influenced by him. Look at you now, they said from the crowd. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, then, if you are the son of God, same language, save yourself and come down from the cross. See, Satan wasn't done tempting Jesus with that language. He would use his people all along the way, all the way to the cross. And he even said, come down again. Cast yourself down. Come down from that cross. Prove it, Jesus. So it's, it's going to continue for us too, guys. Secondly, it will divide us from or deepen us in. Divide us from or deepen us in. What do I mean by that? It'll divide us from God and our relationship from the Father. If we allow Satan to just stand there, then we're going to get further and further away. Or as we move like Jesus and we claim the promises and move him out of the way, we will then go closer and deeper. That's what our struggles are for. That's what the desert's for. That's what the temptations and testing are for is to get us closer and deeper in with our Lord so that we can develop faith, developing faith that can move mountains. Everything you're going through right now is all about developing your faith, deepening you in Christ so that you can get closer to him, right? Closer to the Father, the Son, the Spirit. And faith that can move mountains. Let me go back to my buddy Rocky who kind of is a good example of hearing scripture and you think, oh, wow, that's, that guy spoke the scripture. Well, nah, not really. Let me just go to what Jesus said. I tell you the truth. If you had faith, even as small as a mustard seed, and you could say this to the mountain, move from here to there, and it would move, nothing would be impossible. <laughs> so Rocky was actually off by a little bit. It's not just words that move mountains. Big talk. What's behind those words has got to be faith. And what's behind those, 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 that faith has got to be the proper source for your faith, okay? Because I could have all the faith I want, you know, in rainbows and unicorns, but that's not going to move mountains that I have faith in that, right? You got to have it sourced in the right place. You have, it, you have to have it sourced. And, and, and this is what trials and temptations do for us, folks. It exposes what our true source is. I don't know about you, but I don't want to live a lie. I don't want to live a lie. I want to live believing and trusting in the correct thing, which is my Father in heaven. And if, if I'm living with anything else on the throne, I want it exposed. 
And it's trials and temptations in the wilderness that helps us expose what we trust in. It did for Jesus. It'll expose the source of our hunger. It'll expose the source of our worship. It'll expose the source of our thirst. And we saw this, all three of these, in Jesus, in his physical state, and then in his emotional response, in the way that he responded, in the way that he then lifted up his faith, face in his hands and his, his, his deepening of his faith to the Lord. And this is the answer for us, my friends, is that our hunger alone is found in Jesus himself, who is the word of God, John said. Our worship alone is reserved for the Father, the one who created all things and who set this whole plan in motion to send his one and only son to die for us. And our thirst is only satisfied in the spirit of God, that water of living water that flows from Jesus to us, that Jesus said in John chapter four, when I give you that to drink, you will never be thirsty again. And out of you will flow rivers of living water to others. And, and I see in a lot of ways where back at the Jordan River, Jesus has this amaz amazing affirmation of the Father and the Spirit and himself in that moment. He goes into the wilderness and Satan is going right, not just after Jesus, he's going after the Father, he's going after the Spirit, and he's going after the Son because he rages against them all. And as he comes, he will do that for you and for me. And Jesus then comes out of that wilderness. The next verse we'll study next week is he comes out in the power of the Spirit. And so what happens, there's purpose to your pain, there's purpose to your testing, there's purpose to your struggles in the wilderness. It's, it's, it's an empowering of God's indwelling spirit anew for what lies ahead. So as it is with Jesus, may it be with us that we go through the wilderness with courage and we tell Satan, get behind me. My, my loyalty is to the Lord alone and you will come out with a power that you'll see what Jesus does in this next series called, series called um, Learning to Breathe that Jesus lives in that power of that spirit and he is a different man than when he went into that wilderness, truly, because of the empowering work of God's spirit. And that's what we need, to hear and to see. And so as we come to the table today, what we're gonna do next is to come to the table and to celebrate what Christ has done for us, right? And I wanna get our minds focused on what Jesus did for us, that we even take a moment as we sing, we're gonna actually sing into communion this morning in all our campuses, and we're going to praise the Father, we're going to praise the Son, we're going to praise the Spirit, but I want to just read you a quote, which is why we take communion every month. It's why we talk so much about what Jesus did for us, because it was all through Jesus's life, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were active. They were working together. It was happening, the three of them together, all the way to the cross. The Father, Son, and the Spirit were working together, right? And all the way to his resurrection, and and he is, they were involved together. But this is why we align ourselves with Jesus. Elizabeth Elliot, what a great saint she was. She says, the will of God, which Jesus followed perfectly, is not something you add to your life. It's a course that you choose. You don't just add the will of God. Jesus wasn't in the, in the desert saying, you know, okay, I guess I'll do the will of God as well. No, it's something you choose. Jesus made a choice in the desert. You choose it. You either line yourself up with the Son of God or you capitulate to the principles which govern the rest of the world. You either line yourself up with the Son of God or you just do whatever everybody else in the world does. And this is a temptation for us. This is why we come to the table is so we line ourselves up with Jesus. Guys, there is life and meaning in his death. 
but there's also life and meaning in his life. We have got to examine what Jesus did because he's showing us what it looks like to be Christian. Everything he said and did speaks to how we ought to be living. And that's why we come to the table this morning. We praise our Father. We praise the Son. We praise the Spirit. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for this family. I thank you for the the way in which you're working in our world. And I pray, Father, that we would be obedient to what you're doing in us. It's easy to say amen and to say okay to, to, um, to sermons and the songs and that kind of thing, but then walk out and not be moved. Oh, holy God, would your spirit move us? Would you challenge us? Would you open our hearts to what it means to listen, to walk with you, to, to obey you, Jesus, to line ourselves up with your death, your resurrection, and the life that you lived. And I pray, Lord, that you would line us up in a way that we can be more and more and more like you. Praise you, Father. Praise you, Son. And praise the Spirit. We thank you. And all God's people said, amen.